welcome to another episode of Close Talking. I am your one of your co-hosts, Connor McMurray-Stratton. And I'm the other one, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we've got a great poem by the great poet today, Homeless Heart, by the inimitable, legendary, late John Ashbery. Ashbery passed away a couple months ago and is very sad. And so I thought we should do a poem by him in memoriam. And because we haven't yet done an Ashbery poem, and that is a great shame. Indeed. He's one of the one of the giants of yes. the last century of poetry. Oh my god, yeah. He has been published in Poetry Magazine for like 60 or 70 years. Like he was if you don't know him, um, he's one of the greats. He's won basically every award uh, you can as a poet. His his long poem, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror, when it came out, it won the National Book Award, the National Book Critics Circle Award, and the Pulitzer Prize all at the same time. He's won a MacArthur, Guggenheim. And I picked this poem in particular because he has a sort of reputation for being notoriously difficult or incomprehensible, evasive, which isn't exactly wrong. He certainly has many difficult poems, but I also think that this quote obscurity is not as much him trying to be obscure as a matter of the way poetry's critical discourse tends to apply its readings onto things. And so I, but I wanted to do a poem that I felt was a more tender, accessible poem by him because I think he has a lot of heart and a lot of substance. This poem, Homeless Heart, is from his collection, Quick Question, which came out in 2012. And I think I'll read it. Sounds good. Homeless Heart. When I think of finishing the work, when I think of the finished work, a great sadness overtakes me, a sadness paradoxically like joy. The circumstances of doing put away, the being of it takes possession, like a tenant in a rented house. Where are you now, homeless heart? Caught in a hinge or secreted behind drywall, like your nameless predecessors now that they have been given names? Best not to dwell on our situation, but to dwell in it is deeply refreshing, like a sideboard covered with decanters and fruit, as a box kite is to a kite, the inside of stumbling, the way to breath, the caricature on the blackboard. I mean, nobody's going to say that he's like Billy Collins, but it's not like he's totally inaccessible, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah, so this one's a, well, it's a prose poem, we can talk about that later, but just thought I'd say it. Personally, I just love this one as a, as a writer, but also I think it applies to other things, but this just, like, when I read it, it sort of sums up how I feel when I'm sort of nearing the end of producing a poem or some kind of work where there's this sadness of, of no longer being able to work on it, uh, yet also feeling 
I like the sadness that's paradoxically like joy. There is some kind of joy to having finished, but also to having had the sadness in some kind of way. But then there's this sense of a homeless heart where you've, you've put yourself or you put your heart into working on this piece and then it's done and then you find yourself estranged from the piece and so estranged from your own heart in some kind of way. And yeah, I don't know. It, it just, it, I, I haven't read too many things that really get at the way that I feel about the writing process the way that this one does. Although I think it has... I, I think it applies to any kind of creative endeavor or most most endeavors to some degree. But that's a very personal reading. No, but I think that's a good one. And it definitely gets to what uh, the poem is addressing. Uh, I, I think also the homeless heart is a little bit after you put so much into this piece, the line, the circumstances of doing put away, the being of it takes possession like a tenant in a rented house. And it's sort of like you've constructed this work. Now that work's existence has taken control of it. Your construction is over. Where do your creative energies go now? And there isn't always an answer. And that feels to me like the moment that the poem is caught in uh, and the feeling that it's addressing is like, I don't know where I'm going next. I know it'll be somewhere, but for now, I'm just kind of out here floating around waiting (laughs) for the inspiration lightning to hit. Um, and it even acknowledges the like the excitement of that, the element of excitement by saying uh, to dwell in it is deeply refreshing. And then giving examples uh, of just like, you know, it can be kind of cool not to know what's next and like anything could be possible, but there's a deeper sadness to it and an uncertainty that is maybe... I don't know if I want to say the truer feeling, but maybe like it's a 60-40 split or maybe 70-30 between general excitement, but maybe a little bit more anxiousness. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's very funny. I love that. No, there definitely is, I like that you point out the dwelling. There, There's this consistent kind of double paradox kind of thing happening where, you know, he says best not to dwell on our situation but to dwell in it is deeply refreshing. So there's, it's not good, but you want to do it. Um, also, I wasn't, with that line, I wasn't sure how much to read into the fact that it says dwell on the situation and then, but to dwell in it is deeply refreshing. I was wondering if there was some difference between being on or in, but that also sort of parallels in the beginning, a great sadness overtakes me, a sadness paradoxically like joy, which feels similarly which feels also related to this being versus doing relationship. I was also struck by the double use of dwell in the same sentence, partially just because he's not using it directly for the meaning of like to live in necessarily. I mean, he's like, he's saying to live in this situation, but more in a, like to contemplate the situation kind of meaning, but to use that specific term twice in a poem titled homeless heart and like to live in a dwelling you know, I I just thought that was particularly cohesive poem crafting. And I, I think there is a little bit of a difference between dwelling on the situation and dwelling in it, because dwelling on the situation is thinking about how horrible it is to not have a direction or to have finished a creative work and not know if you'll ever do something as good again, if you'll ever, ever get the inspiration to do something again, but to dwell in the situation is to be present in the creative excitement of it. 
Yeah. I think. Because if you're dwelling on it, you're like freaking out. And if you're dwelling, <laughs> if you're dwelling in it, you're like, hell yes, I am free. Gonna do all kinds of cool creative shit. <laughs> I no longer have to think about whatever like this big work that I was doing was, you know? Like you're on <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's that's exactly what Ashbury said as soon as he finished this poem. It's, Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he did his Ashbury chant. A lot of people don't know it, but uh, part of why he was so productive and successful is because he had a chant he would sing every time he finished a poem. <laughs> and it was, hell yeah, I finished that. Now I'm going to do dope creative shit. John Ashbury! Uh, and then he would just like rip a phone book in half and run outside and throw himself naked into a snowbank. These are all true facts. But no, I love that you point out the dwell echo in the house, because I think that is right. And I think that is a good reading of the on verse in, because that also is why I like the earlier part so much, the way that he continues this this house image, but in sort of surprising ways. Um, so the circumstances of doing, put away, the being of it takes possession like a tenant in a rented house. So the being is almost like the landlord that, you know, is like, yeah, you can't rent this house, perhaps is the way that I was reading to the tenant anyway. And then where are you now, homeless heart? But then we're thinking homeless, but then the sentence that comes after that is caught in a hinge or secreted behind drywall, like your nameless predecessors now that they've been given names. And so the hinge or the drywall are presumably still in this house, but they're in places that are, you know, not, you know, maybe comfortable features of the house. And hinge is such an interesting, to be in a hinge is to be in the kind of mechanism that opens and closes a door, uh, which, which feels very relevant to the creative process. And to be secreted behind drywall is to be in in within the structure that sort of you know forms the building but you're hidden from sight and you're in between the actual sort of spaces you know that that's a way of dwelling in the situation where you're you're in it in a literal sense but you're not of it and you're not renting it anymore or you're not you know like a legitimate tenant of of the work and then i was curious with that that line ends then caught in a hinge or secreted by, behind drywall i wasn't sure what to make of this exactly i had some ideas but like your nameless predecessors now that they had been given names so i assume you know he's addressing the homeless heart when the heart is in some ways the the worker the writer of the poem and then your nameless predecessors are sort of the predecessors of of the homeless heart but yeah i was just curious what how you read that line. I think I read it along the same lines as what you're describing is the homeless heart is that is that in that space between it has it's contemplating the next project that is unnamed. And uh, as it says, you know, like your nameless predecessors, now that they have been given names, these works, whatever they were for him, it seems pretty clear that he's talking about writing and, you know, because it's who it is probably poems. But most of his poems bear titles. They're given a name or like the book of poetry is given a name before it's published. And the nameless predecessors are all of those works before they were finished, before they were like completed and put together and, and put out into the world. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the end, I just, I find this very 
satisfying for a lot of reasons. So after that nameless predecessors, then it's best not to dwell on a situation, but to dwell in it is deeply refreshing. And then there's this series of sort of simile fragments, like a sideboard covered with the canters and fruit, as a box kite is to a kite, the inside of stumbling, the way to breath, caricature on the blackboard. I have some questions and some thoughts. So on the one hand, I'm wondering, it begins with a simile, like a sideboard. So then I'm wondering, you know, what is the simile compared to? So one possibility is that it's about the refreshingness, potentially, because uh, that's what comes right after, um, that a sideboard covered with the canters and fruit is, is like the refreshingness of dwelling in it. You know, you have this uh, buffet table that's like, on the side of a wall that has your decanters of wine and fruit. It's kind of this, it's luxurious and it is the potential for sumptuous consumption, which aren't really words that should be paired together because they're basically the same. But at the same time, it's on the side. It is sort of like, it's not the consumption itself. It's the place that holds it. And then the other ones felt like they were sort of separate. They were like separated by that one, which is so tightly tied to it. And then these other ones are describing not what's refreshing, but just more generally the state that he is trying to plumb the depths of with this work. Yeah. Yeah, that seems right. This makes me think of a, a way of thinking about movement and the opportunities for movement in a prose poem specifically, but also has applications in a lineated poem. But the way that a series of fragments can move topics without sort of saying that they're departing from it, which is what's interesting is like, especially the way that this happens is it begins like a sideboard covered with the canters and fruit. And the next one is as a box kite is to a kite and that as still has that structure of a simile-ish comparison. And so you wanna read it as a, a duplicate sort of comparison yet it's moving away from that at the same time. And so I think there's like this dual thing where the parallel sort of fragmented structure makes you read it cohesively, yet at the same time, the, the content of the images of themselves are departing. And that kind of tension is what makes this end so compelling to me in a way. And the way that they move is so interesting. So uh, as a box kite is to a kite, then I'm thinking about parts that are parts of something larger. Well, a box kite is a kind of kite, one particular subset of a thing, but also the specifics of a box kite feel right for this in that it's a very open kite. You know, it's a square and there's air coming through the actual thing where the motion is generated from the inside. And that actually feels like it connects to the next one, which is the inside of stumbling, which is also like a very, probably one of the harder to see images. I don't know what the inside of stumbling is exactly. Yet, seems right, stumbling feels like exactly the description of finishing the work or writing the work, where you're stumbling from image to image and you don't necessarily have this form, this named form that maybe you get to when you finish. And to be inside of that stumbling is to have that home, perhaps. I think it's also maybe getting at the sense of surprise that you feel when you do stumble or maybe the combination surprise and also frustration because a lot of times you don't intend to stumble. And so that's 
getting right back at the duality of the beginning, which is like, oh, this is great. I finished. It's fantastic. But now also I'm super stressed out and don't know where my energies will go next. When you're inside of stumbling, there is a sense of surprise, not necessarily not like a positive surprise, but I think that surprise could be linked to the feeling of like anticipation and curiosity. And then there's usually, I don't know how you guys feel when you stumble. I don't know how you feel specifically, Connor, but I'm usually like, ah, you really donked it again. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> you dumb dumb uh like really don't feel great about it i'm against it i'm against all stumbles and i feel a little bit the same way about as a box kite is to a kite because in reality a box kite is like bigger number one how cool is it that a box kite kind of looks like a stereotypical drawing of a house you know like a square like bringing back the home thing mm -hmm. uh but a box kite also has like an inside and an outside which connects to a lot of what we were just discussing in terms of being caught between or being caught in and out but as a box kite is to a kite like a kite is usually just the fabric whereas the box kite is sort of the outside of the fabric and much like that provides maybe more freedom and the air flows through it it also defines a contained space and so getting at the sense of this conflicted in between space being equal parts excitement and frustration well not being unequal parts excitement and frustration the box kite also in mostly providing an open space does actually delineate space in a way that a standard kite does not so i think in both of these two kind of images they contain the the conflict that exists and in some ways try and visualize it or experientialize if that's a term it and also kites is a great image that works well with stumbling if there's that you know you you throw up the kite and you it just follows the air and you don't have any sort of control over where it goes except where the wind dictates that it will go which is a kind of air stumbling as it were that is also very aesthetically pleasing how many great movies have that scene of a kite just flickering around in the air right and you're usually and, doing it in a cool setting with a big open space around you like the beach or something or like a neat field yeah and then that goes to the way to breath which as a side note i feel like a lesser poet would end the poem on the way to breath because that's the most poety of lines. Poems are always talking about their own breath and poems just about speaking and there's your song to yourself. If only you can find out how to utter, then you will be, you know, one or whole or restored or some, in some ways. In some ways, breath turns into the one fulfilling, sustaining action that you need to do. Breath is the finished work in some sense. If you were to read this work, you're using breath. So the way to that is that kind of stumble. But I also think, feel like I've read a lot of poems that end on the word breath or some kind of thing. And I appreciate that Ashberg goes there, but that's not where he wants to linger ultimately. And the last image is frankly, the bazaar. And I'm not quite sure where it's going. The caricature on the blackboard. We haven't talked about schools yet. We haven't talked about drawing or like portraits or representations or chalk. But I like it. I like the image. And it's a, ni a neat little injection of, of fun. It is pretty fun. And it sounds good. I mean, the, the C's, the C sounds, the caricature and the R sounds of blackboard, caricature of blackboard. It also, it's a very unprecious image. 
it is an image that is crafted by someone in a physical way, but it's on a blackboard. So it's, you know, a very mundane and also rudimentary kind of way of making something with chalk and also it's a caricature. So it's a, it's an exaggerated or poorly done rendering. I liked it because it seemed to be a product that would come out of wild or almost unplanned kind of creativity. Like it's done on a whim very quickly, dashed off. And it's like funny and fun and eccentric and totally unique to whoever created it. And that is the part of this experience that he is struggling to find in the poem. And I love that it ends on that image because at least for me as I'm reading it, it feels like that is not someone dwelling on their situation. They're dwelling in it. They're living in their creativity. And they felt like, hey, I'm walking past this chalkboard. There's some chalk on it. Ah, oh, what the heck? I'll draw, you know, Noodle Eyes, my favorite cartoon character. And it's like, boom, there it is. And somebody comes by and sees it and thinks, wow, that's like somebody drew that. That's cool. I'm seeing, you know, art. And I think that caricature on the blackboard really comes to embody everything that Ashbury is having a hard time finding with his homeless heart. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. And that also speaks to the the movement that these fragments take where the sideboard with the canters is most closely linked to that refreshing dwelling. And so we're in that refreshingness, but then it starts to move sort of almost backwards into the process of writing where as a box kite is to a kite, carries that simile structure, but is more of this open image and and has this kind of inside subset, outside part, as we talked about. And then it moves even into the inside of stumbling, which connects to the kite, but does not connect at all, I think, to the decanters and is even more abstract, which then moves into the way to breath, which feels like the most processy, poety, writing kind of image that does connect to the inside of stumbling in, in, insofar as that can be talked about as the way, the way that you get to breath. But then breath sort of seems to lead into the caricature on the blackboard, which in some ways is no longer the process, but the thing. And you're sort of left with, what's nice is that you're left with an image. Like it's it's a thing that's been done rather than the way to breath the inside of stumbling, which is like more of a thing that you're doing. So it, so it ends on the being of it in some kind of way. But perhaps the hope is that the being in this at the final end, which, you know, it's nice to end on a poem that's about being versus doing you finish, you know, finishing the work can be writing, but it also obviously can be reading. So you're finishing reading the work. And then as you get to it, you're ending on the being of it rather than the doing, which is like how the poem had progressed. And the most process point is put right next to the most work point because the caricature on the blackboard, as you were saying, is the finished work. And the way to breath feels the most entrenched in the two of those juxtaposed because even though it is a prose poem, those two fall on the last line and they're directly next to each other, those two sentences. So they do sit alone and a little bit separate from the rest of it. And I think at the end, they sort of reflect back on the rest of the poem and give you a sense of what the central conflict being described is. What I loved about this is that this line where you now homeless heart comes in 
sort of in the middle of the poem. It comes after the sort of main point of the poem. And it makes the case that the heart is in the work or is in the writing of the work. But because the question comes in, I don't know, it's like a sort of a leap. And it also delays the saying that the heart is the thing. And so there's sort of like two steps that are built into that question, where are you now, homeless heart? One is, and this, by the way, all that I've said, the writing of it is also the heart. And then where are you now kind of thing. And it just, it can combines those into one, um, which I think is just really effective. And also just so there's so much longing in that uh, sentence, you know, and I just love that line and the way that it comes in. Homeless heart is a great phrase, too. Yeah, just as a poem title, as a phrase to have thought of, that's a really good one. It's sort of like uh, Bruce Springsteen's Hungry Heart. Like, that's just a great name for a song. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so true. Um, I, I like that you point out that it's not right at the beginning when it comes in, because the beginning of this poem would indicate that the title should be something like Finished Work or thoughts on a finished work. It's the first question in the poem, and it signals a change from description of finishing the work to the point of uh, the poet or the writer or whoever living in the moment after. Because the beginning is sort of about that actual finishing and describing it, and then after the homeless heart question, it gets into Ashbury trying to describe the feeling of being in the space of having finished. And it's also, you know, we probably talked about this a little bit when we talked about um, that Don Lundy Martin prose poem, but people often say the basic unit of meaning in a lineated poem is the line, whereas in prose poem, it's more the sentence. And so the sentence structure is where you get your, your turns and your, your voltage and your momentum from in a prose poem. And so that where are you now being that first question, as you say, is is really the first really big turn in the poem that sort of is indicated by it being a question and also by it being an address. And then the second question sort of continues that. And, and then as a small turn that echoes, I think, the beginning and best not to dwell on our situation, which has that parallel structure. Um, and then the fragments sort of at the end with that simile structure sort of guide at home. But Ashbery makes innovative but efficient use of a variety of sentence structures to compress a, a complex set of moods into a fairly short space. Definitely. I like that description, a complex set of moods, because this poem is not very long at all. Uh, yeah. And particularly because it's a prose poem, doesn't take up very much space on a page, but it does encompass so many different feelings and switches between them without feeling disjointed really effectively and somewhat swiftly as well. Like the one sentence to the next felt change. It reminds me of when we talked about to make a prairie, giving all the different answers to what makes a prairie within like 30 words, 35 words or whatever, but none of them feeling removed from the previous ones. That's sort of how I felt the switches of feeling were happening in this poem. It's like, oh yeah, this is the next one and the next one. And they're very different, but they do feel like a, a, a natural progression within the work. I agree completely. I think that it's time to read the poem again. Oh, it's time to read the poem. 
All right. I'll do it. Homeless heart. When I think of finishing the work, when I think of the finished work, a great sadness overtakes me, a sadness paradoxically like joy. The circumstances of doing put away, the being of it takes possession like a tenant in a rented house. Where are you now, homeless heart? Caught in a hinge or secreted behind drywall like your nameless predecessors now that they have been given names. Best not to dwell on our situation, but to dwell in it is deeply refreshing, like a sideboard covered with decanters and fruit, as a box kite is to a kite. The inside of stumbling, the way to breath, the caricature on the blackboard. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this, please, please, please write a review or rate us on iTunes. You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book-related stuff at facebook.com slash close talking or on Twitter at close talking or one of us at hot sauce boxed or at Jack Rossiter Munn. If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed or think we got something wrong, let us know. Hit us up on Twitter or shoot us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com.